So I want us to be thinking about what are the trials that you naturally bring to this passage. Because um, Adam just read, Consider it a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not trials of any kinds, but trials of many kinds. What are the trials that you face? And, and what we need to do first, if we're going to be, I, my temptation is to be sloppy as a pastor sometimes, right? Whatever you're going through, that's what this is about. Yeah, it's not. Right, we have to ask the question because we want to be good and orthodox and faithful Bible readers, or some of us. Some of us don't care, but some of us. Right, these are the kinds of verses that get slapped on an Instagram thing and we go, yeah, whatever trial I'm going through, God, like, uh, you, you want me to consider it a joy. Now, if you're like, if you like cheated on your spouse and you're going through like a trial, like that's not what this is about. Now we laugh, but seriously, I've heard people kind of appropriate like, yeah, I've just totally like not been faithful at all with trying to get a job and, and like not even tried and... And I have like, I'm in so much debt because of the stuff I've done. It's not that God doesn't care about it. It's not that God can't bring you through it. It's not that God might do something miraculous with it. But don't, we can't, we can't impose our 21st century mess ups onto James. We just can't. It's just not good reading. So I mentioned that and I don't have time to get into it. Uh, but you feel free to talk to me after if you need me to defend my stance here. But this is also the stance of most scholars. So you can fight with them as well. It's like the worst trump card. Yeah, well, most people say it in the books I read. First and foremost, trials and temptations. It appears when we look through the book of James that socioeconomic suffering is what James has in mind in two forms. If you were to look ahead, if you have your Bibles open, to James 2, 6 to 7, where uh, this kind of is crystallized of what James is talking about. He says, you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? It's also more than this. When we look through it, what is James getting at? What, why is he writing this to this group of people? This didn't drop out of the sky. There's an early Messianic Jewish community, very Jewish community he's writing to, and he wants them to know about the way of Jesus. So he begins with a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is actually, it's like a humble thing, but it's also sort of like a humble brag. Like Moses was called a servant of the Lord. Like David, a servant of the Lord. So he's sort of like, yeah, I'm just a servant of the Lord, like with those guys. You know, it's actually, he's like grafting himself in as a leader in the community and saying, I'm somebody where first and foremost, my calling is to serve the way of Jesus. And he's writing to them because apparently they're going through trials. Apparently then they're tempted in these trials. And so it's good for us to first understand what is he talking about? And we know that there's some sort of outside oppression. There's a lot of theory about these were the people who were being attacked and being martyred in some part in the book of Acts that we read in 11 and, and they're moving over and this is the community he's writing to. We don't have time to get into all the different theories but it's important for us as 21st century Americans to go, okay, it seems like first the socioeconomic oppression and two, they're tempted to revolt. They're tempted to fight back, and they're tempted for, like, infighting. To, 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 to kind of do a little time warp thing to the very thing I said not to do. Think of it, for those of you who have ever been in a relationship, things get really stressful on the outside. Not stressful because one of you, like, you know, did something awful to the other person. Like, finances are hard. Like, you're in a long-distance thing. It's just getting really difficult. There's some kind of like just anxiety around whatever it is. And what can tend to happen? It either what brings you together or it pushes you apart, 
right? How many times have you ever like had sort of a, you're standing side by side with this, whether it's a friendship or a couple or something like that, and like there's this thing, right? Whatever, this problem, this anxiety, and you should be on the same team, you know? And instead, weirdly, your anger and frustration towards that thing gets directed at the other person. And like years later, you look back and you're like, why was I yelling at you? Because, you know, X was happening out here. It's much richer than that in this passage. It's much, there are much bigger things than just a relationship squabble. But it it fits. It's a healthy analogy. There was the socioeconomic pressure and there's outside trials and it's leading them to act in ways that aren't good. They're putting their trust in their own anger. They're defaulting to some sort of recklessness and some sort of violence instead of, and that's what we'll get to. So I want to spend a fair amount of time this morning on this word considering. To bring us back to the text. He says, greetings, welcomes everybody. And he says, guys, consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And we'll keep going from there. To consider trials as an occasion of joy. Any of you find that a little bit much? Again, think of the trials that you have been through. Hey, when you're going through that thing that is wrecking everything in your life, when you're going through that hardship and when you're going through that struggle, consider it a joy. They are encouraged to look through it to look through whatever X is, whatever that thing is, whatever that heartache, or that brokenness, that hurt, that outside pressure is and consider it a joy. This is an act of faith. And I, I was really excited when I came upon this word because I've read this passage who knows how many hundreds of times. And I want to know, where else? Does this word consider anywhere? Because it sort of like feels like make it up. Yeah, I know like you're being shot at, but hey, consider, uh, consider it something like, you know, sweet you can learn from. Consider it, not just something you can learn from actually, it's actually consider it uh, like sweet. You're being shot at. Consider it a joy. This sounds like dumb like religious talk to me on first like look through. So I, I wanted to like unpack like what is going on here and look through where else is this word, is this word used anywhere else? I found some places. Acts, these are going to be on the screen, so you don't have to flip around. Acts 26.2. This is Paul writing. Uh, this is an account of the first, or not writing, but an account of the first church. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. I consider myself fortunate. He is on trial in front of King Agrippa, and this is an opportunity for defense, for preaching, and for a potential release. This is like a not good situation where Paul could be thrown in jail or worse. And Paul considers the opportunity that he is now on trial in a public setting, being accused, outnumbered and outgunned. He's like, I'm going to consider this, like, I'm going to consider myself fortunate that I'm about to be thrown in jail. I'm going to consider myself fortunate because there might be some opportunities to talk about the way of Jesus. Philippians 2, 3. This is also Paul. Do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition. I can never say selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. Rather in humility, here's our word again, consider others above yourself. 
Consider others above yourself. Paul has every reason to boast. He's a good Jew of Jew. He's a righteous person. He's doing a really great job at living, like A plus human. And he's like, when you look around, and again, we can go, oh yeah, of course, consider others better than yourself. Like, think about the person that you are having a hard time with right now. And you know what? I know they're coming at you with A, B, and C. Consider what they're doing and consider them actually better than yourself. Look through whatever it is and consider an actually different thing than what's going on. Philippians 2.6, talking about Jesus, who in by very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus did not consider equality something to be grasped but be surrendered. Jesus looked at his uh, power and stature, right? We're told he's about to go to the cross. Like, why don't you make this right? Why don't you overthrow the Roman Empire? Why don't you send, it says in the text, legions of angels? He said, I don't, I want to do something else. I'm going to actually uh, not consider like who I know I am in Christ because there's a way and a path of love and generosity and laying down my life that I want to show. He looks through it. Christ did not consider equality something to be grasped. He did not look for power. He considered another way when that would have been the natural thing to look through. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looked at how great he was and he considers it nothing. He knows, again, that he is like, uh, he has done everything in the religious world that puts such a high bar or a high, uh, um, high weight on how you were living out your religious life and how many times you showed up to church and how you sang and how good you lived and how often you fast. All these things that maybe we don't think much about but would have been such a marker of, of, of pride and stature. And he says, actually, um, I, I considered, I looked through that as actual loss. All these things I could count as good, I looked through that. Hebrews 11, 11, just two more. And by faith, even Sarah, who passes, is talking about Abraham, who past childbearing age was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Abraham considered God faithful even though it had been years and years and years and years that he, that, that they were not able to have a child. He looked through what seemed like the obvious circumstance and on the other side, what does he find? He finds the faithfulness of God. He trusts. There's something to look through. And lastly, Hebrews 11:26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. This is Moses. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of God as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He regarded the same phrase here as as the exact same word in Greek considered, disgrace for the sake of God as of greater value. Moses considered suffering for God more valuable than all the riches in the world. He looked through it. He looked through all the wealth and opportunity and saw something great. So these aren't all negative examples like we see in James. But this is, we see a pattern. We see a rhythm And this is something that I would argue has unbelievable effect on our daily lives of how we look at the crap in our life. 
James urges this community to consider their trials an occasion for joy. He tells us, guys, look through it to cleansing, to freedom, and to its impact. Specifically, joy. Joy. So I still think this is crazy. So why joy? Why face trials with joy? Normally in the scriptures, when people say things like, Consider it a joy. He later on says you'll receive the crown of life. So this first church, you're being oppressed. You're being beaten down. You're tempted for infighting and brokenness. This is sort of this messy situation. Consider all this an occasion for joy. Usually in the scriptures, usually it's talking about if you kind of persevere, if you're patient, if you consider what's on the other side of this, man, it's all heaven. It's all coming up roses. It's all coming up like everything in its right place. Normally, the fancy theological term is like there's an eschatological picture. There's a sense of, okay, you know, it's, it's why usually the Christian narrative flourishes under oppression, specifically American slavery. There'd be this just window of, I know things are hard now. I'm going to faithfully serve, consider my circumstances a joy, work towards freedom and, and against injustice. But I know that regardless of what happens here, there's an end game. I don't want to discount that. That's a very real picture that has had real impact and that actually affects our lives now when we have that sort of hope and when we remove the fear of death. It's actually beautiful. But James Again, if we were going to do a big study together for the next three hours, which we don't have time for, just trust me. We'll see that in James, actually that's not the reward he's talking about. And that's not why he says consider it pure joy. He says sufferings and trials. He says in this that it will produce endurance, which is like patience. Later on, he says suffering and trials should promote justice. He says sufferings and trials in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, and in chapter 2, he said it should promote a life full of love and compassion. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, sufferings and trials should promote a life of peacemaking. He's saying there's something about the pain that you're going through that will produce all these things that you should consider it joy because it will in some way promote what it means to be a peacemaker. It will make life more rich and beautiful. And ultimately, it will lead to what we're going to spend some time in next is maturity. What it means to be mature. C.S. Lewis said this, pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's an opportunity to become awake. It's an opportunity to wake up, right? We know when things are hard, it usually shows our true colors. Correct? Again, regardless of whether you're a, you're a Christian or not this morning, do you feel like that's a pretty safe statement? When things get rough, you're like, oh, this is what I really think, right? You've had a hard day. What happens when you've had a hard day? What goes down? Filters, right? How many of you, like, if life's great, F-bombs usually never escape your lips. But things are tough, and you're like, yeah, like, sailor, Sailors swear a lot, apparently. Right? When things get rough, what's being produced? And so Lewis, amongst other things, is pointing out that God uses pain, the brokenness, the choices of others, and the choice of ourselves, and the reality of a groaning earth because of our hurt, the pain and temptation and trials around us, it rouses a deaf world 
it wakes us up. All right, somebody posted a picture. I tried to find it before I got up here. I couldn't. It was a, it was a shot on Instagram, and it was someone critiquing the fact that people pray for their football team to win. It was obviously given the Super Bowl today. And it showed a child who was clearly malnourished, nourished, nourished, malnourished, wow, holding a yellow um, water uh, container who had just walked back from the well. And it may have had some really snarky and totally appropriate comment uh, about, like, you pray to God for football. You know, just sort of a big, like, middle finger. I love that, right? Because what happens in that moment? Like, we all feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? It's that moment, like the Debbie Downer moment, right? When everyone's, like, talking about, like, how, like, I just watched HGTV and I came up with, like, 18 new really cute things that I can do in my house, which I love and my wife loves no hating on HGTV. But it's that awkward moment when all of a sudden in the middle of that, some, like, really hurt, some hurt in the world or something that feels a little bit more, has a little more weight to it, like, spikes and wakes us up. Like pain, there's something about pain, there's something about brokenness, something about trial, there's something about temptation that knocks us, knocks us awake. It's God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So James is saying, look, consider this an opportunity to be awake. Consider this a joy because what's about to come from it, if you let it, will be so much more important and more beautiful than what you're going through right now. Why should this first church find in their tests an opportunity to see through them into joy? And the answer is maturity. James is telling people, don't panic, don't overreact, don't turn a problem into a crisis, be patient And James says you should let patience have its complete effect. And the effect apparently in verse 4 we read is perfect and complete. Which sounds again a little bit over the top. If it wasn't enough that James is asking us is when everything's gone wrong in your life, consider it a joy. Because you'll be more patient, you're going to grow in maturity in the way of Jesus and you'll be perfect and complete. This whole thing sounds such like a great idea and so far-fetched. Which I think is why then James leads us into the next section, which is asking for wisdom. I always get the impression as James is writing this, he's like, yeah, this is good. This is good. They need this. They need this. They're never going to be able to do this. Ask for wisdom because, good Lord, this is going to be difficult. (laughs) If you're struggling, if you're hurt, you can pray for wisdom. God is not stingy. God doesn't hold out on you. He will make it clear and he will enable you to see the bigger picture. He will enable you to be patient, to be perfect and complete, to be full of maturity. Wisdom, it's been said, is to realize that your trials and temptations are not all-consuming. Maturity is realizing that these trials are a part of a bigger context and a bigger story. You're not at the center of it, and that's a good thing. That there's a bigger picture, that trials aren't random. That trials and suffering don't, don't just come at us um, in some sort of way. Also that God like, caused, we read this in a little bit. But there is a reality in the brokenness of the world that God is making all things new. 
even as we face trials in this current day, but we have been given the resources, the strength, and our God is not stingy to give us wisdom. He's not stingy. He's not holding out. I have found in my life, I don't know about you, but I can speak really faithfully to this, that it's in the times that I get pissed off at God for not helping me through a situation that I realize that I never really asked. And a God who desires relationship and desires us to be engaged and desires us to be disciplined to walk in the way of Jesus. When I find myself overwhelmed and turning on my wife for something that has nothing to do with her, when I find myself overwhelmed by a situation and being pushed back and I get anxious and I don't consider it an opportunity for growth, in fact, that's the last thing on my mind that has nothing to do with God and everything to do with me. And so let's not paint God as like holding out, as being vague, as not wanting to give us wisdom, power, beauty, insight. Amen? Let's not think about God like that, mostly because he's proven himself faithful time and time again. And most of the lives of people that you see sitting around you, definitely in mine, and for sure we see in the lives of scripture. There's an opportunity for something greater. I love that. I love that. Wisdom is to realize your trials and temptations are not all-consuming. Maturity is realizing these trials are part of a bigger picture. Richard Rohr says this about Christian maturity. It's going to sound like a tangent, but it's really important because what he's about to say is that we think so often as me as the big, he calls it the big I, like the important person in the room. So that when trials and temptations come, it feels really disorienting because we're the ones that that's not supposed to happen to. Right? We have this false self, this false idea that we are sort of, imp- like, we are not able to be like, um, to come under trial. Uh, specifically for those, we have a lot of folks in our church who are like in that 20 to 30 spot. Right? A lot of us, this is like the age where nothing bad could ever happen to us. This is how we think. Can we be honest about that? I'm over 30 now. I can't even group myself in that list. Stupid. All right, this is our temptation. My Peter Pan complex still causes me to think like, yeah, nothing bad really is going to happen. We don't ever say that. We know, of course, it could And so we have sort of this big eye picture of us. So Richard Rohr says this then about maturity, about wisdom. He says, it's a gift. It's a gift to joyfully recognize and accept our own smallness and ordinariness. Because then you're free with nothing to live up to, nothing to prove, and nothing to protect. Such freedom is my best description of Christian maturity. Because once you know that your I, capital I, is great and one with God... Like the center of who you are is that you are a loved child of God. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to live up to. You don't have to earn your keep. Then you can ironically be quite content with a small and ordinary eye, i.e. a life that might endure like some real hardships. That makes sense? No grandstanding is necessary. He says any question of your own importance or dignity has already been resolved once and for all and forever. You don't need to worry. When trials and temptations come your way, these are not defining things that happen to you. You know of a bigger story. You know who you are, and you know whose you are because of what Christ has done. And it actually shifts Christians. The, 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 the way that Christians have dealt with suffering when they have been faithful is one of the most unbelievably brilliant anomalies in the world. I mean that and stand behind that statement in every way. James is saying you can have an inner confidence because you are confident in the goodness of God and God's hand on history and that you would become more like Jesus. All this for James creates a sense of joyfulness. 
joyfulness. He says later on in verse 12, blessing is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Suffering is unbearable and random and just the worst if you don't have an understanding that God is for you and with you and can actually turn this into something beautiful. It's not just you can sit it out, man. It's going to be okay. Heaven's waiting. Again, this isn't James's focus. He's like, actually, this can produce something unreal. You can use this trial and temptation. God will use this for something beautiful. How many of you have struggled with an eating disorder and you found yourself, God having brought you through it, you now have an unbelievable opportunity to serve and love those around you who struggle with the same thing? How many of you have unbelievable patience for really annoying broken people and can sit quietly with them because you were once an annoying and brilliantly awful person? God brought you through like a really difficult time in your life. How many of you can now go and reach out and speak to others about sex addiction and brokenness in their sexuality or pornography because you've endured such trial and you may even be in the midst of it, but you are allowing God to bring this into a place of maturity and growth in you. How many of you have been poor and haven't been able to make a rent check? I know there are some of you here. It's hard and it's anxiety-laden and you're cutting costs and you can't go to that thing because you don't have enough money and whatever it may be. It's a considerate joy. Consider it a joy because it's going to cause patience and endurance because it's going to shape you into a mature person. And as we read later on, as I said, a peacemaker, someone full of love and life, someone who is awake and and dialed in much more to what's really going on. Consider it all an opportunity for joy. Consider it an opportunity to deconstruct the false self to deconstruct what's going on. Because here again is the thing about suffering. Is it wakes us up to the times and places where we actually don't turn to God. That's why he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded or almost like double-souled. It's a really tough phrase to translate. And unstable in all that they do. Does this make sense now? That last part that seems sort of harsh? It didn't dawn on me until I kind of got through, really looking through the, like, in depth the first part of this text. He's like, when you're going through a hardship, then turn and ask for wisdom. Actually turn and ask for wisdom. Don't be like double soul. Don't be like, yeah, yeah, God, help. But you really actually go in the opposite direction and you try to fix it. Because that's what they were doing. They were going through all this pain and then they were turning to one another. They wanted to commit violence towards their oppressors, which wasn't the way of Jesus. They were infighting. They were treating folks that were actually poorer than them, even though they were all really poor, like as less than. They were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, God, 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 but I'm going to fix this. Anybody? Anybody struggle with that? It's like only at the craziest moments, like, do we actually turn to God or not? It's like at the craziest moments, we're like, yeah, God, help, but I got to, like, I got to do this. And we run away from the source. I don't mean we engage wisdom. I don't mean we, like, work to, like, make things good in a God-honoring way. But we don't turn to God first. 
We don't actually turn to Jesus and say, help. I want wisdom. I want to consider this a joy. Help me use this situation for good. That's why it's not a given. I'm a father of Jesus. I'm going through a trial. That means I'm going to consider it a joy like automatic. No, it's just turn and ask. Don't be double-minded. Don't be tossed about by whatever thing comes at you. I love the wave metaphor. And don't just be batted around. Change your mind this way or this way in terms of how you're dealing with it. Just turn to Christ and actually consider it a joy. Allow him to make things right. Consider it all an opportunity for joy. Consider it an opportunity to deconstruct the places in you that actually don't trust God at all. Deconstruct the places in you that actually are very uncertain that you are loved and, and blessed at the center of your being. Deconstruct the lies that you put up. Right? He, he like rebukes rich people in this part of the section, not because he hates rich people. He says some of you use this as a mask. You turn to your wealth, and we all know that withers away. Knock it off. Stop being double-minded. Turn to Christ. Turn to the bigger story and the bigger picture of what's at play, and it will allow you to engage your trials and consider them a joy. I want to welcome the, the band up and, and close with a few pieces here. Here's the thing about trials, about suffering as a Christian. And this quote is on the screen, I believe. This is from Tim Keller. Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, like as opposed to fatalism, the other direction, contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Christianity teaches that contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering can actually be meaningful. There is a deep purpose to it. And faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Boom. <laughs> While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming, the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. How brilliant is that? While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. If you follow Jesus, you're not supposed to simply like just survive the brokenness. You're not just like supposed to like wait it out. You're supposed to thrive. You're supposed to count. You're supposed to make a difference. You're supposed to take part in the renewing of all things, being agents of love and justice and peace and beauty and wonder and celebration. All these things that we talk about every week. And so when these things come, may we not be tempted to turn away from God, but towards him. May we not be tempted to consider this random and of no use May we not just like the seculars just try to get out of it and avoid it. It can actually be meaningful. Again, this is not like a call to like just sit there and take it. But it's a call of honesty and not delusion to recognize life is hard. Like the most Captain Obvious statement I've ever uttered up here. Right? Life is hard. 
There are things that will come at us if they haven't already that will burden and break us down. And what kind of people are we when crap gets real? When things get honest? When that pain, like like the megaphone has roused us to realize, oh, this cocoon of our country or of our culture is not working anymore. Who are we there? Are we double-minded? Are we tossed about by the waves? Are we turning to God and saying, God, I need wisdom? Because I want, like James, like this first century Jewish community, I want to be a person who actually considers it a joy, who actually grows from it, who actually becomes more alive and more awake to love and more awake to beauty and more awake to the things that matter, that I would become mature, not someone who has to freak out. My anger and my anxiety would die in the wake of trial not be amplified in the wake of trial. James is asking us, is the character that develops within us the real thing? Or are we double-minded and unstable? Do you turn to the source? Do you believe there can be meaning? Will you look through the pain? Will you consider the pain? Will you look through it? and can actually consider what's happening a joy. I want to end uh, with this picture. Next slide. I think I'm pronouncing this right. It's Kintsugi. It's, uh, it's actually the name of the new Death Cab for Cutie record. Um, but I was reading about it, and it's, uh, it's a Japanese art form. Next slide. And it basically... It takes broken ceramics, and next slide. When it fixes them, instead of, like in the West, when you break something and you want to fix it, what do you do? Like you want to fix it in such a way that you don't notice that there were any cracks, right? When we fix something, we want to put it together in a way that you're like, oh, we never knew it was broken. What's interesting about this uh, this, uh, this art form, this, this medium of sorts, is that they actually take beautiful metals like gold and silver. And they use that to fill in the cracks, which will obviously then show the cracks. Next slide. You can see it there. So these, bra- these broken ceramics, instead of trying to hide the cracks, they fill it with gold. They actually go, this is a part of the story of this broken piece of pottery. And it actually in some odd way shines brighter and is more valuable than the clay pot that went before it. If anything is a picture of who we can be because of Jesus is this. We're not interested in hiding our pain. We're not interested in just pretending like it doesn't exist or that we weren't broken, but to allow God to fill it, to allow God to connect the dots, to allow God to put us back together, to allow God to consider the brokenness, the trials, the breaks that we have in our life, and turn them to gold. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, help us to consider trials and temptations of every kind. Help us to consider them a pure joy. They might lead to patience and endurance. 
Lord, that they may help us to become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Become alive and awake to who you are.